0: Going to be in First Peter again. And so if you have your Bible, you can open up to that. We're still in chapter two. We're going to finish up chapter two here today. Start with a question this morning. The question is: have you ever suffered unjustly? Have you ever received punishment for something that you didn't do, something you maybe didn't deserve? And when that happens, it's easy to respond with anger, with resentment, uh, maybe even with revenge of some sort. Maybe you have the type of personality when you get kind of blamed for something that you didn't do or you you suffer unjustly for something that you just absorb it. What we're going to look at today is we're going to look at this. How should we respond as Christians when we're treated unjustly? How do we respond when we try and live good and honorable and holy lives. And instead of getting rewarded for it, we get beaten for it. What do, we, what do we do with that? How are we supposed to respond? And we need to ask ourselves the question, because of the context, what we've been looking at here in First Peter is, his assumption is that there is a way in which we respond to everything around us that brings those who are watching, those who might even be speaking evil against us, they're watching us, and our goal is that they would come to a point where they glorify God by turning from their sins and trusting in Jesus. That's what we want to happen. And so the question is, is there a way in which we can go through suffering, even unjust suffering, in a way that points other people to Jesus? Remember that this is a letter by, by the way, this passage today um, is hard. We go through Scripture verse by verse because we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, right? But if, if, I'm, just, if I'm just kind of a pastor that just picks a different passage every week, I'm going to pick 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 25, and I'm going to skip verses 18 to 21 because it's hard. But we're not doing that because when we find a passage of Scripture that's hard, whether I'm preaching it or maybe you're just reading through the Bible on your own, you get to a hard passage of Scripture, I encourage you, don't run away. Don't try and make excuses, right? Dig in deeper and say, what is that saying? Because I know that this is good. This is God's Word. So what is it saying? So I encourage you to do that even as we look at this passage here today in First Peter chapter 2. We need to remember in context that this is a letter that Peter is writing, the Apostle Peter writing a letter to a church that's scattered throughout Asia Minor. And they're living as exiles there, and they're living as God's elect people. They're born again. They've trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They've become different people in their relationship to God, and now they're living in amongst these people, and they're very different from them as well. So they feel very out of place. And at the beginning of the letter, Peter's reminding them, don't forget who you are. You need to remember who you are. And then he started to tell them, especially in verse 11 of chapter 2, and this is how you ought to live, because they're all watching you. Everybody else that makes you feel so uncomfortable, they're all watching you. They're even maybe right now speaking evil about you, but we want to get to a point where those people are glorifying God. How are we going to get there? Live holy lives among them. We've been talking about that, and so we're kind of doing this three-week mini-series right now called Attractive Submission, right? And so that's the, we're in part two of that this time. Last time we looked at how we are to submit to governing authorities over us in such a way, instead of like complaining about those in authority over us, uh, resisting those in authority over us, um, that we would be the kind of people that would respond to the authority over us in such a way that other people are pointed to Jesus. And now today we're going to look at a harder text, a harder text that talks about slaves and masters and trying to figure out how do we respond to unjust suffering in a way that brings attention to Jesus. Here's the big idea today. The big idea is when we choose to submit and suffer unjustly, we remind ourselves and others of how and why Jesus suffered. All right, so if you have your Bible, you're opened up to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're able to, because it's God's word, let's stand as we read God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. This is God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when... Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you confessing that we are like sheep, and we're very it's very easy for us to get off course. So I pray now that by your Spirit you would reign in our minds, reign in our hearts and our souls, that we would be attuned to what it is that your word has for us, that your spirit wants to do in us as we sit here together this morning. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so let's just just jump right in and look at verse 18, okay? Verse 18 says this, Servants, and now your translation may have translated that slaves. Slaves, servants, bond servants. Okay, Peter is addressing people who were under the authority of and in most cases owned by other people. People who were masters. And Peter is addressing the servants or the slaves right now. Slaves living in Asia Minor inside the Roman Empire. Slaves that are Christians. He's addressing them and he says, servants. And then he gives us then this command. We saw this in verse 13 last week. Be subject to every human institution, it said last week. Now it is more specific. Servants, be subject or submit to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So he's acknowledging that there is this thing called slavery, and there are Slaves, and there are masters, and he's saying, I'm speaking to you, slaves who are Christians. Here's how you respond to your masters who may or may not be. They might be good and just, and they might be bad and unjust. And the way that you respond to them is that you submit yourself to them. Be subject to them. Before we go on, I just want to uh, give you, because when we hear slaves, what we do because we live in the time and the culture that we live in, we might think of our own nation's history when it comes to slavery. There's some similarities and some differences to the slavery that he's talking about here. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was common, very common. It was said that there was one slave for every five Roman citizens. Kay? So it wasn't that there were a few slaves here and there, and only a few rich families had a slave living in it. No. No it was very common so that there was about one slave for every five Roman citizens. Most of those slaves became slaves when they were captured in war. Some of them were kidnapped and forced to be slaves. Some of them became slaves willingly because they didn't know how else they were going to make a living. Some of those slaves were actually very well-educated. Some lived in nice homes, had access to good, education, while others lived in miserable conditions that we wouldn't want any human to live in. Some would actually earn enough money as slaves to buy their own way out of slavery. But the reality is that slavery wasn't good. Most of these slaves were owned by their masters, and God did not intend that people would own other people. The law did not give slaves' protection. And so it was very common that masters who were not good and just would beat their slaves and there was no punishment for them for it. That's the kind of context that Peter is writing into. That's the people he's writing to. He's writing to slaves who were believers living in Asia Minor in the Roman Empire, some of whom had good masters, some didn't. And he says... The command is very simple. Be subject or submit to them. Now, he's going to explain this a little bit further in verses 19 to 21. So let's look at that. Verses 19 to 21 say this. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. So he's telling these slaves, listen, it can be a gracious thing. You're suffering unjustly. It can be a gracious thing. When, When mindful of God, remember who it is that you serve Ultimately, when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then he says, well, what credit is it if you, when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? He's like, well, of course, right? But, he says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he says this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow him in his footsteps, in his steps. The message that Peter is sharing with these guys is this. Listen, sometimes submission and doing good leads to you suffering unjustly. And sometimes God will use you suffering unjustly to point other people to Jesus. In this case, Peter is addressing these slaves and he's telling them, Consider how you might follow Jesus' example. You call yourself Christian. You're a follower of Christ. Look to Jesus as he suffered. He did good and suffered unjustly for it. Look to him as your example as to how you respond to unjust suffering. Now, you probably have, as you read this, as you hear me talk about this, the same kind of objection that comes to my mind. And that objection, hopefully, is this. Is Peter saying that slavery is okay? Is Peter saying not only that slavery is okay as an institution? Is Peter also saying that it's okay for masters to beat their servants? Is it okay for masters to treat their servants unjustly? Is that is that what Peter's saying here? Is he saying that that slaves should just endure it because Jesus? We should be asking that question. Is that what Peter is saying? The quick answer to that question would be no, that's not what Peter's saying. Slavery's wrong. But we need to remember who Peter's writing to. Peter's writing to fellow believers who are a part of a persecuted minority as they suffer as slaves. This is Peter writing. Remember, Peter, he himself will die. For his faith in Jesus, he's part of the persecuted minority as well, and he's writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering unjustly in slavery. Here's here's the way, I'm trying to do an illustration to help us understand it a little bit better. Let's say you move, okay? If something happens with your job, whatever. You have to move. You move to a new school district, to a new spot in the country where a number of the people there, most of them don't know the Jesus that you worship as a family. And as you move there, you come to find out that administrators and teachers, those on the school board, are all in agreement that bullying is a normal part of growing up, and so it's not punished or dealt with in any way in that school system. And so, inevitably, what happens is the first week that your kids are in school there, your son comes home with a black eye. You've got to respond in some way to that, don't you? Right? You're living amongst these people. All of them think that bullying is just normal. It's okay to do that kind of thing. Most of them don't know Jesus. How do you respond? Well, at some point, You should probably have a meeting with the school board. You should talk to teachers and administrators. But that day, when your son comes home with a black eye, what do you do? You comfort your son. You let him know that what they just did to you is wrong. And you remind him that these people don't know and worship Jesus. And do you think you could figure out a way? Can we figure out a way that you could be an example to them? While they bully you, how could we point them to Jesus? Right? Right? And maybe someday you're going to need to deal with the institution as a whole. But on that day when your son comes home with a black eye, you talk to your son about the fact that what they did was wrong and it's not right. And if you can avoid it, avoid it. But if you can't avoid it, you can see it as an opportunity to point other people to Jesus, right? Uh, I think that's maybe helpful in understanding what Peter's doing. Peter is not in the letter that he wrote to the elect exiles in Asia Minor, he's not addressing the, insta- the, the Roman Empire. He's not addressing those in authority and saying, here's what I think about slavery. He's talking to those that just got beat up unjustly. Right? And so that helps us to understand the context a little bit. And I think the truth that Peter's trying to get across to them is this. God can use the unjust suffering of his people to bring glory to himself. You think that's true? And I think what Peter is trying to do here is he's trying to tell those people, listen, as you suffer unjustly, be thinking about the ways in which you could point people to Jesus as you endure this unjust suffering. Now, I want to guard against a a misapplication that we could have here. Because we could misapply this, And there are those, more common than we think, probably those of you sitting here today who have either endured abuse at the hands of others in the past or are currently enduring abuse. And you need to hear this. Abusive treatment, whether it is in the home, in the school, in the workplace, whether it is physical, sexual, emotional, abuse is not what God intended. Abuse is not something that should be tolerated. And to the extent that you're able, we ought to avoid unjust suffering. We ought to avoid abuse. We see Jesus doing that himself. If Jesus is our example, let's look to Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 59, some people got upset with Jesus, and they picked up rocks ready to throw them at Jesus. And Jesus hid. In John chapter 11, it says, from that day on the people made plans to put Jesus to death Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and stayed with his disciples it is not unchrist like if you are enduring abuse it is not unchrist like it is actually a good thing for you to seek to avoid that abuse and even beyond that beyond that It ought to be reported. If you are enduring abuse in some way, if you have, that ought to be reported. Now, Peter was writing to a people who lived at a time where there was not laws in place to protect them. Praise be to God that we live at a time where laws are in place to protect people who are vulnerable, people who are being abused. And so we were told earlier in verse 14 that... That human government is set in place to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So if you are enduring abuse, you do not have to endure it in order to be Christ-like. You ought to report it. It takes courage to do that, but it's something that you ought to do. We also ought to not to take from this, and we'll see that later as we see how Jesus responded. We do not respond to abuse in a sinful manner trying to get revenge or something like that. God has ultimate authority, right? And so he's the one who will punish, and God has given limited authority to human government to punish as well. And so we ought not to respond to unjust suffering and abuse in a way that causes us to be sinful, but we ought to report it. Another thing that you ought to do, uh, knowing uh, people who have been abused, there is this temptation to believe that you deserve it, and so you just absorb it. That's a lie. I want you to hear this from a book from some people who have endured abuse. Here's what they say. No matter what kind of abuse you have experienced, there's nothing you can do, nothing you can say, nothing you can think that makes you deserving of it. There is no mistake that you could have made and no sin you could have committed to make you deserving of violence. You did not deserve this. It is never your fault. You did not ask for this. You should not be silenced. You are not worthless. You do not have to pretend like nothing happened. You are not damaged goods, forgotten or ignored by God, or getting what you deserve. You need to hear that. For those that have endured abuse, we can hear this truth that Peter was sharing with them. God can use the unjust suffering of his people to bring glory to himself that time's unjust suffering cannot be avoided. And it's then that we need to ask ourselves, how might we respond to this in a way that brings honor and glory to God? One of my favorite stories in Scripture, kind of odd that it seems like a favorite story, but it's the end of it that I love. And it's the story of, of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was a deacon in the church. And all he did was he did exactly what God told him to do. He proclaimed the name of Jesus to lost people. And what happened is people got so mad at him, it says that they ground their teeth at him, and they cried out with a loud voice, and they rushed at him, and they dragged him out of the city, and they threw rocks at him until he died. And when they threw rocks at him, he did not pick the rocks back up and throw them back at them. Instead, he asked God to forgive them. And he looked up into looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus seated on the throne. And we we're told in Acts chapter seven that one of the men who was watching this is a young man named Saul. He was probably overseeing it in some way. He was holding the coats of those who were doing the stoning. And he also was very against Christians. He's watching Stephen endure unjust suffering in this way in Acts chapter 7. And two chapters later in Acts chapter 9, we see this young man, Saul, come face to face with Jesus, and he's converted. He has his eyes open to see Jesus for who he really is. And God is glorified in many ways through the life of this man, who used to be known as Saul, is now called Paul. He writes a big chunk of the New Testament, makes disciples who make disciples all throughout many regions. And we are not told that anything that that he witnessed in the way that Stephen endured unjust suffering directly led to the spot that he was at in Acts chapter 9, but I can't imagine that it didn't have something to do with it. Watching That kind of thing, and the way that Stephen responded to unjust suffering, saying, Father, forgive them, and looking up and being satisfied at just seeing Jesus, that had to have some effect on Paul and all the other people that were watching that day. So we know it's true that God can use the unjust suffering of his people to bring glory to himself. But Peter is trying to tie all this into a much bigger point, and that is this. Verses 22-25. 22 through 25 let's look at that first look at verses 22 and 23 you'll notice in here maybe if you've if you've read the Old Testament one of the most quoted and famous passages in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 53 Isaiah 53 Isaiah 700 years before Jesus is prophesying about a suffering servant who will come and, and Peter is using all sorts of language takes it right out of Isaiah 53 and says this is about Jesus and puts it here in 1 Peter 2. So we're going to look first of all at how Jesus suffered and submitted and then why. Verse 22 says this. Verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Want to know how Jesus submitted and suffered? He did so without sinning. He did so without a word of deceit coming out of His mouth. Verse 23 When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus was not treated fairly. Peter responded when they came to take Jesus by taking his sword out and cutting off a guy's ear. Jesus told him to put his sword away. When a sinful mob came to drag Jesus back to Jerusalem, he went with them willingly. When he was enduring an unfair trial as they were condemning him to death, he spoke nothing in his defense. When he was tortured and mocked by cruel soldiers, when his flesh was torn to shreds by a whip, he did not respond with a threat or condemning words. And when he hung on the cross in horrifying physical agony, being humiliated publicly, Jesus said things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus gave himself up willingly. That's what it looked like. Jesus, remember, Jesus' suffering was unjust. He was being punished for something that he didn't do. This is what it looked like for Jesus to submit and to suffer unjustly. And how could he do it? Did you see that at the end of verse 23? It says, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How did Jesus endure that suffering? The suffering was very real and very unjust. But Jesus also knew his Father, who was very real and very just. And he could endure unjust suffering at the hands of evil people because he knew a God who was just, and he trusted him. That's how Jesus endured. But why? Actually, before I get to why, I want to notice I remember it at the end of Mark. At the end of Mark's gospel, we see it in another one as well. Remember, there's this character known as the Roman centurion. Remember how he was watching how Jesus endured this unjust suffering? And remember what it says? It says that Him, seeing that he died in this way, proclaimed, truly this man was the Son of God. That as Jesus endured unjust suffering in the way he did, right away we see someone who was opposed to Jesus now glorifying God by saying, truly this man was the Son of God. How we endure unjust suffering makes a difference. And I thought about this this week. And I was thinking of like some big, grand application. And I thought, you know what? What about a tiny, petty one that actually makes it even even seem stronger? Let me, let me think of it in this way. I th- here's what I started thinking of. I started thinking of how many times do I feel like I've been unjustly wronged in some way? And how do I respond to that? And I'm talking petty little stuff, not big things, just petty little stuff. I cut somebody off, accident, like I wasn't doing it on purpose. I cut somebody off uh, at the grocery store this week, right? I cut in line in front of somebody. She was upset, right? I've responded in that way before, right? Uh, how many times do we, maybe, maybe you've paid for a ticket to go to a game, and maybe you even got something invested in a game because you've got a kid playing in the game, and you feel like a wrong call was made. One of the reasons I hate going to games is because I hear people just, just yelling at the people that made the call, the real human beings that are referees and umpires that maybe made a mistake, right? And we get all upset, like we respond, and Christians do this, and maybe you're like, okay, I'm feeling like you're stepping on my toes, maybe I am. But I can't stand it when I go and a brother or sister in Christ is the one that's complaining about some, oh, we've been unjustly wronged by that call. Who cares? It's a game, so shut your mouth. We're representing Jesus as we sit in the stands. Right? We're representing Jesus when we're shopping in the grocery store. We're representing Jesus everywhere we go in the way in which we respond What we see as somebody unjustly wronging us in some way is reflecting on who he is. And so we need to be careful with the way that we respond to unjust suffering, right? And and then, then you come back to what Jesus did, and we think, man, how bent out of shape do I get about such tiny little insignificant things? How bent out of shape does that make me? When, and then, and then how, how does that make me feel when I realize that I've got brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are really being persecuted for their faith? How, how, how petty does it seem when I consider the sufferings of Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he was threatened, he did not threaten. And then we get to why in verse 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25 say this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In that one verse, we've got three reasons why Jesus suffered and died. Three reasons why Jesus submitted to the evil men who wanted to put him to death. Why he submitted to His good Father who had a good plan, and why He suffered unjustly on the cross. Three reasons. One, to bear our sins. He Himself bore our sins. Right? Jesus died in our place as our substitute, our sin. He had committed no sin. It just said that. He had committed no sin, but He took on our sin in His body on the tree. That's one reason that Jesus submitted and suffered, to bear our sins. Secondly, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died so that we might die to sin. Remember, we used to be under the dominion of sin, a bad master, and Jesus died to set us free, to pay our ransom, so that we would no longer live under that master, but we could now live as his slaves and servants. And then thirdly, End of that verse, verse 24, it says, By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus died so that we might be healed. He's probably not referring in context here to physical healing, although that will happen one day as well, but referring to our ugly disease of sin. And it's dangerous and deadly. He's saying, By his wounds you've been healed. All of that. That's why Jesus submitted and suffered. And then we get to the final verse, verse 25. Verse 25 says this, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So you get what we're hearing here? We who were once dead in our sin, under dominion of sin, Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree so we don't have to bear it anymore. He took our punishment. We deserve to be wounded, but instead we were healed. We were on a path to living a life of sin that ended in destruction, but Jesus sets us free to live a new kind of life. And it says here that we were like straying sheep. Foolish, straying sheep. That's how we're described before God saved us. And Sheep that are straying and get lost, they're in grave danger. You know what the thing is with sheep? They're too dumb to even know they're in danger. That's part of the problem. And that's part of our problem. Straying sheep eat things that'll kill them. Straying sheep are in danger from predators, and they have nothing to defend themselves with. Straying sheep are incapable of finding their way back on their own And that's how we're described here in verse 25. Straying sheep. Remember, Peter's writing to Christians and he's reminding them of this. You've been brought back. You're not a lost sheep anymore. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We have a shepherd. And we've been returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus submitted and suffered so that we might return to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. We needed the shepherd to lay down his life for us so that he might be our savior. And you know what? We need an overseer. We need a Lord. We don't just need Jesus to be our savior. We need Jesus to be our Lord. Because when we are our own Lord, we stray like sheep. We eat stuff that kills us, and we're going to be destroyed unless we submit ourselves to the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and can return us to safety, can return us to a spot in which we'll be protected, even if we would endure unjust suffering. So grateful that we have the promise of the compassionate and wise care of a shepherd and overseer. That's what brings us to communion together this morning, right? All this stuff that we just looked at. This is how Jesus submitted and suffered. This is why Jesus submitted and suffered. Once a month, the people that gather here join us together as we take communion. So, elders, if you could just come forward and prepare to serve us communion this morning.